Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is March 4th, 2021. It's Tony here in Saskatchewan, and welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense. This is normally where Lewis would chime in that he is Lewis from British Columbia, but unfortunately, he and I were unable to sync up for a show this week, so you are going to be stuck with me flying solo today, but we will still cover the same content from the same conservative perspective that we always do on Canadian Common Sense. We have some new listeners lately, and so I want to say welcome to the show and thank you very much for joining us. Now, for our very loyal following of listeners that we currently have, and we definitely appreciate all of you, very humbly thank you for coming to us here at Canadian Common Sense to uh, get your little injection of our common sense conservative perspective on Canada's issues and the problems that we face as a country. We're very honored that one-third of our audience actually comes from outside of Canada. We have a large following in the, in the United States. Uh, we're certainly glad to have you all, and we're honored that you look to us to keep you informed about what is going on in Canada, and we're happy to do that. All right, so on the show today, we are going to talk a lot about covid We've got some vaccines on their way. We've got COVID hotels and what a big mess they are. What the hell is going on in Canada's military? And was Lewis right in predicting a spring election? Let's make that case. All right. So let's jump right into it. We're going to talk about COVID Unfortunately, we have to talk about this issue pretty much every show, and it's still top of mind. A lot of it is because of the Trudeau government's absolutely abysmal performance on procuring vaccines for Canadians, because, and we've touched on this before in past shows, I mean, just because we're relying completely on other countries to get us our vaccines. We wrote absolutely horrible contracts where we didn't get licensing for any domestic production. I'll explain why that's important shortly. And I'm actually really convinced that the Trudeau government could not successfully organize a snowball fight in January in Canada. And to those of you who are listening to us in warmer climates, there is almost all across Canada, there's usually at least 30 centimeters of snow on the ground anywhere in January. So that's how poorly organized and how inefficient our federal government is. All right, on the vaccine front. So we are getting, and boy, has there been a lot of fanfare from the Trudeau government on this announcement, 968 thousand vaccines to be delivered to Canada this week. Or for my friends in the United States, one day supply. But yes, we are going to get what the Americans would be injecting into their population in one day. We will only receive in one week. 
And in fact, the Americans are even injecting more than 1 million doses per week. But Canada, we're getting 900, or sorry, Americans are injecting more than 1 million per day. Whereas Canada is thrilled to get 968,000 vaccines in a week. Canada is currently, I believe, 54th in the world for vaccinations rates for our citizens. In fact, that was a figure from a couple of days ago. So we're probably even lower into the 50s now, probably 57 or 58th. And we're supposed to be a G7 country. We're supposed to be one of the quote-unquote rich countries, one of the wealthy industrialized nations. And we're somewhere in the mid-50s for getting our citizens vaccinated. Absolutely pathetic. But hey, we've got 968,000 vaccines coming. And the Trudeau government still promises they're going to get 6 million Canadians vaccinated by the end of March. Now, two caveats on that. One, I have to, to uh, give the government their due. They did not say that those Canadians would be fully vaccinated by the end of March. And they can easily wiggle out of that by saying, oh, hey, provinces uh, are responsible for distributing vaccines. So if they don't get their second shot by the end of, of March, that's not on the federal government. And it's not. But I don't see how Canada is going to get 6 million Canadians, even their first shot by the end of March, because we just haven't had the vaccines. We've We've had less than half of that 6 million vaccines in this country so far. And we've only got 27 days until the end of March. So in those 27 days, Canada needs almost 4 million vaccine doses coming our way. Now, you would have heard Anita Anand, who ad nauseum tells, tells anybody who will listen that Canada has the most diverse portfolio of vaccines of any country in the world. And by the end of of Q3, we will have up to 80 million doses for Canadians and the world. Yeah, that Anita Anand. But if we're going to get 6 million of us vaccinated by the end of the month, we've really got to get moving here. Now, yes, there we have now a third vaccine candidate now that AstraZeneca has been approved. And is the AstraZeneca vaccine allegedly is going to be shipping us 20 million doses. And again, I don't remember Minister Anand giving us a timeline, but then there would be also 2 million doses coming from India of the AstraZeneca. So there would be 22 million doses for Canadians. Again, when would be really great to know. And the Trudeau government has actually lately been announcing for at least Pfizer and Moderna what the delivery schedules are to be but how can we take them at their word anymore? How can we believe what they say when all they have done is lie to us about vaccines and then continue to find somebody else to blame? Now, they continue to blame Harper because the Brian Mulroney government sold off uh, sold off Connaught Labs to, to Abbott, who then shut it down. Somehow that's Harper's fault. And what they don't say is how the Trudeau government work to rebuild our pharmaceutical manufacturing industry in this country. And what they further don't talk about is we already have a vaccine manufacturing capability in this country. 
But because of licensing agreements, like I said earlier, we're unable to make that happen. Now, the, the government lately has realized that Canadians are pretty ticked off, especially when you see Manitoba ordering vaccines on their own from Providence Therapeutics. And then you see the government of Saskatchewan putting $14 million into Vito Intervac in Saskatoon to try to, to create a made-in-Canada vaccine, which is what Providence is doing in Calgary. And so now the government decided, oh, well, we're going to put even more money into our domestic vaccine production now to prove that we are doing something. And last year, and you heard me say it on this show, they did actually give some money to Vito Intervac in Saskatoon and to the National Research Council in Montreal. Well, now they've given more money to the NRC and more money to Medicago in Quebec City. Now, had we had these licensing agreements, and I have brought this up before, Medicago in Quebec City was actually capable and is capable of making the mRNA vaccine that is the Pfizer and Moderna's. And the NRC and Vito and Nuvax in Montreal, which has got nothing from the federal government, even though they offered their services, all three of those, Nuvax, Vito, and Intervac, or NRC, sorry, can make the AstraZeneca vaccine right now. They could start right now. And according to Dr. Amir Ataran, epidemiologist, scientist, remember, follow the science. Dr. Ataran said that the National Research Council actually has the capacity on their own to supply Canadian needs. However, no licensing agreements in place. So here we are with capability in our own country, but yet we will be relying on foreign gov governments or foreign countries to be sending us vaccines. Now remember that there is a Pfizer plant in Michigan, Kalamazoo, basically a slap shot away from the Canadian border. And they, can't, they won't ship us any vaccines because the deal Canada made is that those vaccines will come from Europe. And, well, unfortunately, the European Union has said, nope, us first. And the Americans have said, nope, us first. And Canada last. So that problem continues on. But with more vaccines coming, maybe there's hope. Except that the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't have a lot of testing data for the over 65 cohort. The seniors, you know, the ones who are actually the most vulnerable to COVID because in their clinical trials in Europe, the AstraZeneca, I guess, just didn't do enough testing on seniors. They saw some problems early on and decided not to test seniors very much. But yet our government says, no, you shouldn't be worried. So we'll just use our senior population as our own form of clinical trial and give them what we can give them. Now, there's a, what do they call a power panel on power and politics? There's a few talking heads that get together and talk about the issues, well, much like what Lewis and I do. And one of these gentlemen said something on last night's show that really, really ticked me off. Now, this gentleman was Shakir Chambers, who is a typical, he's, he's a CBC talking head, has been for some time. And... When the, the subject came up about which vaccine do we get? Do we get to choose if we get the Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca? And 
I had to write down what he said I, so I could quote him. He said that, no, no, we, we, we shouldn't actually get, have a choice. And he said, and I, this is where I will quote him, quote, this is not about consumer choice or freedom. It's about getting people vaccinated, end quote. Um, no, you know what? We are the consumers because it is our tax money that is paid a lot for these vaccines. And yes, it should be about consumer choice. It should always be about freedom. And you, Mr. Chambers, can shut up. Because if I'm getting the vaccine and I don't get to choose which vaccine I'm getting, I'm not getting a vaccine. Now, that said, I'm not anti-vaccine. Neither is Lewis. We've had this discussion before. Um, but I'm in no hurry to get one because I've seen no studies on long-term effects because it was just made within a year. So I'm happy to be last in line for that vaccine. Thank you very much. Our senior population, those who have 2.3 or more, more comorbidities, those who are 65 plus, 70 plus, those people absolutely need to get vaccinated because we've proven time and time again, they are our most vulnerable population and we need to protect them. Me? I'm middle-aged. I'm healthy. I'll wait. Thank you very much. All right. Let's move on. Stay with COVID. And let's just talk about COVID hotels for a minute. Or 10. Travelers who have been vilified by our federal government, even though only 2% of COVID cases to date can be linked to travel. And yes, I know. What if... Uh, traveler comes back and spreads it and we don't know know that someone they spread it to has spread it out and whatever i get that and travel still is not the big super spreader that community transmission so far seems to to indicate however we vilified our politicians traveling over christmas break and i will continue to do that and i am not even being a hypocrite if i defend the regular citizens traveling because it was our political leaders who told us at Christmas time, don't travel, stay home, do the right thing. And then they went and jetted off thinking we wouldn't know. All right, I digress. So when Canadian travelers go abroad and come back home to Canada, they now have to bring a PCR test done within 72 hours before they left. And when they come back to Canada, they are now required to isolate, I guess it were, quarantine themselves in a COVID hotel, a government-sponsored COVID hotel. And as soon as I say the word government-sponsored, you should know that this is going south right away. Government-sponsored COVID hotel. And when you've heard Trudeau say, you know, this day could cost up to $2,000 for three days, he's not lying. There has been reports from the cost ranging from anywhere from $800 up to $3,000 for the stay in the COVID hotel. And one lady was only in the hotel for about 18 hours when she got her positive test or her negative test results back and was allowed to leave and go isolate at home. But she, in her case, paid $1,100 plus a $300 and $340 fee that they couldn't explain, but it was just still on there. So almost $1,500 in her case 
for an 18-hour stay. And what kind of hotels are they getting to stay in for their $800 to $3,000 bill? Well, Lewis and I talked about on a past show where they get carted into a van with blacked out windows so they don't actually know where they're going with and then they get to this hotel with plastic all over the wall and some hotels indeed have had the doorknobs removed or and locks removed so you can't even lock your door there's been taught then cases of bags of dirty clothing sitting outside the door because they apparently are going to wash your clothing for you and the food is substandard. They often don't even give you a beverage. One lady had, had bought water at the front desk when she checked in, and good thing she did because they didn't give her anything to drink with her with her subpar meal. And she said she was starving, and it was a crappy meal, and it wasn't enough. And the first thing I thought was, welcome to socialism. Now, I have a lot of First Nations friends, and uh, one of my friends tells me almost constantly, if you really want to see what socialism looks like, just come to a First Nations reserve. And in this case, I'm going to paraphrase that and say, you really want to see some socialism? Let's talk about COVID hotels. They're being railroaded into these hotels. They're getting food that they usually don't like, and it's not enough to, to satisfy their needs. Not getting something to drink. Getting four different... Um, how do I make this make sense? They get to have four times a day, they get to have, quote, yard time so they can get out and get some exercise. Supervised, of course, a security guard takes you anywhere with you. You're not allowed to leave your room unless you have a security guard with you who takes you, isolated from other people, away to the yard for your yard time. And then you are not allowed to leave your room until that security guard says so again. Hmm. That's almost like a COVID jail then, isn't it? Certainly seems to be. And there was this Instagram video a few days ago. And I'm a little suspicious of the video because the lady starts her Instagram live video. And then within seconds of starting the video, oh my God, somebody just opened the door. And then she runs out to, out to the door with her camera and there's nobody in the hallway. And she starts yelling. And a security guard comes around the corner, way down the hall. And she starts yelling at him that he opened her door and he looks like he doesn't have a clue what she's talking about. So I'm a little suspicious of that video. Of course, apologists said, oh, well, I'm sure that, you know, that's probably, maybe that's just how she communicates with her family is through an Instagram live video. And I thought, if you see the video and you see that she's wearing a very thin white top with absolutely nothing underneath it and it's unbuttoned all the way down, She's probably not saying hello to her grandma when she's exposing a lot of herself, for one thing. And a little suspicious that the second she starts, somebody, quote, opens their door, and yet she runs immediately to the door and there's nobody in the hallway? I don't know. But at any rate, at least it exposes that there were no locks on her door. And that's the case in a lot of hotels. There is no locks on their doors horrible food you're not allowed to leave until they say so because you have to have that negative test result it's it's actually worse than jail there was actually a man who worked in a maximum security jail who had written to rebel news when they did a story about this and told them that 
those conditions are actually worse than the inmates in the in the federal jail get. How do you like that and them apples, hey? So not only are you paying for your own incarceration in a COVID hotel, you are getting worse treatment than prisoners get who have all that paid by you and I, the taxpayer. Now, not only is that an absolute abysmal stain on our government, there's more, and we say that so often on this show, but there's more. At least two cases now, allegations, nothing proven in court, allegations of sexual assault in these COVID hotels because, well, there are no locks on the door. One case involved a security guard. One case involved another patron of the hotel. Regardless, that's enough for me to say, okay, you know what? It's bad enough you're stomping on our charter rights. It's even worse that you're forcing us to pay for our own incarceration and pay through the nose. But by keeping these places open, you're even knowing what's going on, you're just being negligent as a government. We have a right to be safe in this country. And I'll move into our charter rights right now because we have rights against unlawful detention. To me, this is unlawful detention. And we have mobility rights in this country. We have the right to move from province to province to seek or earn a living or just to move because we're Canadian citizens and we damn well can. Now, my friends on the left have said to me, and some of you might be thinking the same thing, that the government can suspend your charter rights in the case of public emergencies. Yes, you know what? That actually is true, but Section 1 of the Charter covers that. When Section 1 talks about, yes, those rights can be suspended, but only in a manner that is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. That's a direct quote from the Charter, by the way. I have a copy of the Charter. I read it a lot. And yes, I'm very nerdy that way, but I do it for you, Canada. How can you demonstrably justify these COVID hotels? How, how ever is it justified to allow a sexual assault to occur in a COVID hotel? Um, is that not a public emergency when people are being attacked in a government detention facility? That is not demonstrable justification to rob somebody of their rights against arbitrary detention, in my opinion. So I know there's going to be court cases over this. I know people are going to sue the government and I hope that they win and I hope that they win big. And yes, I understand that means my tax dollars going for settlements, but this is absolutely ridiculous. These COVID hotels need to be shut down and they need to be shut down now. Conservative Party of Canada health critic Michelle Rempel-Garner has been all over this and sometimes she can be quite over the top, but I am totally with her on this one. These hotels need to be shut down. I mean, we can't allow these hotels to continue. And here's another kicker. In Ontario, allegedly, the fine, if one chooses to refuse to go to a COVID hotel and just decides to go straight home to self-isolate, they could be they can face a fine of about eight hundred and eighty dollars. 
So when I look at that and I think, okay, so if the price for your for your incarceration in a substandard COVID hotel is between $800 to $3,000, so it's been reported, I'm thinking, give me the $880 fine, thank you very much, and I will just go home and I will refuse to pay that fine, civil libertarian that I am, and it will likely get thrown out of court if it even gets that far. All right, moving on. I want to talk about our fine folks in the Canadian Armed Forces. And I'm not being sarcastic when I say that. Anybody who knows me knows that I am a big fan of the Canadian Armed Forces. What I am, Who I am not a big fan of is Minister of, De- of Defence, Harjit Sajjan. He's, he's had a pretty troubled tenure as Defence Minister, to say the least. And he's been Justin Trudeau's only Defence Minister. But he claimed to have organized a few different missions in Afghanistan that he actually had nothing to do with other than being there when the mission happened to take place. But in this particular instance, what has me a little dismayed about Minister Sajjan is the Defense Committee is going through hearings right now discussing the situation with General Vance. Now, General Vance recently retired as the uh, Chief of Defense Staff in Canada the the boss of the Canadian Armed Forces, and there were some allegations of some sexual impropriety, as they say, and there a couple committee members actually were on the radio talking about that, and I'll have to move go back to that point in a bit here, but actually I'll cover that now. A liberal cabinet minister or a liberal member of parliament on the defense committee actually said publicly on CPC that this situation with General Vance should not be talked about unless the woman involved wants it to be an issue. So we're just supposed to know about it. And, but if she doesn't want it to be talked about, we can't traumatize her by bringing it to light. And I tried really hard to understand her perspective as a as a woman, why you know that this woman needs to be protected, and if she doesn't want this coming forward, we need to respect her decision and not talk about it. And I just said, I understand if the lady is uncomfortable discussing the situation. I totally get that, but how the hell do you solve a problem like this? How the hell do you make the person accountable, the perpetrator accountable, if you just don't talk about it and sweep it under the rug. Now, the cynic in me would say, well, because this lady is a liberal, perhaps she's just trying to sweep that under the rug because, well, because it was her government who chose to ignore the situation in the first place, even though they knew it was going on. How do you know they knew it was going on, Tony? I'm glad you asked. Let's get to the next part of this. On this defense committee, they heard yesterday from former military ombudsman Gary Walburn. Now, Gary Walburn in the hearing said he had a meeting with Harjit Sajjan, Minister of Defense, three years ago in 2018, discussing this very subject. And I have to again quote Mr. Mr. Walburn, who said in a meeting with Harjit Sajjan, quote, 
I told him I had evidence and reached for the envelope in my pocket with the evidence, and he pushed away from the table, he being Harjit Sajan. And then Mr. Sajan never spoke to Mr. Walburn again. He didn't want anything to do with this, this evidence. And Mr. Walburn even said, well, you know, please at least take a look at it and tell me what you want me to do next going forward. And Mr. Sajan never spoke to him again about that issue. And that actually contradicted testimony that Mr. Sajan himself had given. And so I want to say, who do you believe? But when Mr. Walburn has an envelope with actual documented facts, makes it a little hard to believe Mr. Sajan. So is this liberal member of parliament protecting Mr. Sajan? Or is she just protecting her whole government by wanting this to go away and saying we should just respect the victim's wishes and not talk about it? I don't know, but it it, it really stinks, but we're going to keep on it and we'll, we'll bring you the latest when we can because this is a, a stain on our military. And yes, it's just one person, but it was the person at the very top. So... Moving on to another boondoggle in our Canadian Armed Forces is the Canadian Navy, a decade ago, commissioned Irving Shipbuilders, Irving Shipyards in Halifax to build 15 frigates for the Navy. Now, the deal was made in 2012, so nine years ago, to make these 15 frigates in Halifax for... $26 billion. That's a pretty big chunk of change. And the deal was made, but we still have not seen one ship yet. And big surprise when uh, the Trudeau government took power in 2017, they of course had to reopen this deal. And in 2017, they had another cost analysis and the, suddenly the cost was no longer $26 billion. It will now be $76 billion for these same 15 frigates. And the Canadian Navy will not see a single one of these frigates until at least 2030. Are you absolutely kidding me right now? So we first talked about it in 2008 when Stephen Harper was prime minister, decided to make a deal in 2012 while Stephen Harper was still prime minister. Nothing happened on it. Justin Trudeau becomes prime minister, opens the deal yet again in 2017, fully nine years after we studied the, the idea and said, yes, it needs to happen. Fully five years after we signed the deal and said, let's do this. St Still no frigates. The cost triples at that time. And now we're told we haven't started and you won't see a single boat for another nine years. And if we ends up being any delays, we're going to add another $6 billion to the tab. So if for some reason we're late, now those $76 billion frigates, which were supposed to be $26 billion, could be 82 billion dollars. Now, I'm all for the Canadian Armed Forces having modern equipment uh, because 
we don't have a lot of modern equipment. Look at our our CF-18s, for example. Our 20-year-old CF-18 fighter jets. Yes, 20-year-old jets. And again, the Harper government had made a deal to buy some F-35s from the United States. But of course, Justin Trudeau came to power in 2015 and almost immediately canceled that deal to buy those F-35s and instead decided to buy some used F-18s from Australia to match up with our already used old past their prime CF-18s. Brilliant! Brilliant! So we send Canadian soldiers out to stand up for our way of life in old worn-out equipment. Great idea. But the plus side is, and I'm not even joking when I say this, other countries around the world will actually seek out Canadian military mechanics for their knowledge on fixing and maintaining this old equipment for those countries who still have the same old equipment in their service. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, that's great we have such skilled mechanics, but how embarrassing is that that we're getting sought out for our expertise in keeping old junk on the road, as it were. Absolutely pathetic. So all I can say is get something done. Somebody. It's quite clear that Minister Sajan is, let's just say incompetent, like, you know, the entire Liberal cabinet in Ottawa. But we've got to find somebody who just gets the deal done and says, okay, let's just do this. Let's do this now. Instead of, as Justin Trudeau does, always punt the ball down the field and announce all this money that's going to be coming for years after the next election. So that if he gets voted out of office, oh, well, if you had reelected me, we could have done something. Well, no, that did not happen. So I really hope that that something happens, and ideally soon. All right, so you heard me use the word election. Let's segue into that third topic for the day. We've got about 10 minutes to go, so we should be able to cover this off pretty quick. At the end of every year, Lewis and I do a, a year in review show where we will talk about some of the bigger stories in our opinion and make predictions for the coming year. One of Lewis's predictions for 2021 is that we are going to have an election and it's going to be an election in the spring. Now, if you had asked us last month about that, the uh, prospects of a spring election, Lewis was still pretty bullish on the idea. I was kind of wavering because I mean, the government was getting smacked pretty hard about the abysmal rollout of vaccines. And they have been getting hit pretty hard, but yet their polling numbers haven't really dropped significantly enough where they might think twice about an election. As a matter of fact, I'm now going to be on the page that Justin Trudeau is rolling full steam ahead and getting ready for a spring election. Why do I say this? Because suddenly they're starting to roll legislation out. He suddenly realized, well, he promised some kind of gun control bill. Done. Let's put in C-21. Well, let's, let's be soft on crime. Bring out C-22. All this is pandering to his left-wing base. 
gun control, soft on crime, the medical assistance in dying, virtue signaling on climate change. Check, 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 and check. Suddenly, CERB benefits, that's the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, those benefits are now extended until May. Well, throw some more of your own money at you to bribe you for your vote. Check. And the list actually goes on and on and on. And what surprised me today, this shouldn't surprise me, but today I did hear that Mr. Trudeau actually started, he, did, he, he actually said something that was almost contrarian to what China would say. And I, I was stunned to hear that from Mr. Trudeau. And bravo, sir, that even though all he said was that the two Michaels detention has nothing to do with Meng Wanzhou and that they are were arrested on trumped up charges. So I said, okay, well, probably, possibly not related to Meng Wanzhou, but I'm sure that they are. But that, that's a matter of opinion. So, okay, Mr. Trudeau. And the Michaels are being detained on trumped up fake charges. Well, I think we all knew that right from the day they were detained some 820 days ago or 815 days ago or however many days over 800 it has been now. We all knew this, but it's just nice to hear Justin Trudeau, our head of government, actually say something about that. And we've said this many times in this show, it's obvious Justin Trudeau listens to our show because so many times Lewis and I have brought something up on this show and the Trudeau government has either repeated the points or acted on them almost immediately. I'll say it again in this case. I published a rant only a few days ago saying that Mr. Trudeau needs to grow a pair and actually stand up to China. And two days later, suddenly Mr. Trudeau says something somewhat you know, controversial in Chinese terms. Now, the Chinese government, of course, has told Canada that we need to stay out of their domestic affairs. Well, fair enough, I guess, but when their domestic affairs include genocide, which, of course, Mr. Trudeau still runs away from, he won't talk about Chinese genocide in, in Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs. No, 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 no. He's happy to call Canadian Canada's treatment of First Nations people a genocide, and he did not use the words cultural genocide. He said directly, he accept the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commi Committee that this was, this was a genocide, period. So he's okay calling Canada genocide, just not calling out China for genocide. But that's Trudeau. That's just Trudeau. All right, now the only thing I think that could be holding... Mr. Trudeau back from making an election call right now is that A, a lot of Canadians don't want an election right now. And B, the NDP is actually polling fairly well right now. Let's break this down. Historically, in Canadian elections, if the NDP polls anywhere below 17 or 18 percent, that is good for the Liberals. That means the Liberals bleed off enough NDP support that they will they will tend to win government. And right now, the NDP is actually polling around 
So that means that if those 20% polled actually vote NDP, the Liberals are guaranteed to win a minority government at best. And, of course, that isn't good enough for Justin Trudeau because that's just status quo. And Canadians will be rather severely ticked off if we go to an election to solve nothing, essentially. So there's that working against the spring election. There's also the fact that Jagmeet Singh has said all along that he will not, quote, give Justin Trudeau the election that he wants and will continue to support the government on everything. And that's what he's done. He's continued to bend over backwards and support this government, making himself basically irrelevant. So I can't understand why the NDP is polling as high as they are right now. Speaking of polling, there was a poll done by 338 Canada. This has got to be about a month ago or so now. And speaking of our good friends in the NDP, this 338 poll showed that the 18 to 34-year-old demographics, so our, our Gen Z and young, younger millennials, are all in for the NDP. The They actually, when the polling came through, the NDP was the number one choice for this demographic. Let that sink in. The 18 to 34-year-old crowd was 26% in the bag for the NDP. They were all in for socialism. 26% is not a majority, Tony. Well, no, it's not. But then you factor in that 24% of those same demographics polled were all in for the Liberals. Chose Liberals as their first choice. So now, first choice, the full-on communist NDP, 26%. Second choice, bordering communist, full-on socialist Liberal Party of Canada. Well, there's 50% of your, your, your voters in that 18 to 34 demographic, all in for full-on socialism. What surprised me with that, with that poll is that, that demographic still only showed 6% support for the Green Party. Now, I thought that these millennials and these Gen Z types were, were all in for the environment and were all in for, for climate change and all these other hip hipster lefty talking points but apparently they're not or maybe they are in for the climate change stuff but just figure that the ndp or the liberals are the party that will help deliver that for them i really don't know and where were the conservatives in this poll by the way not as far back as i would have suspected the conservatives were right in the 18 to percent range which i thought that's not horribly bad considering where the NDP and the, the Liberals were. But I was su su quite surprised that the Greens were as low as they were, and I was actually hurt that the NDP were as high as they were. So if Justin Trudeau's handlers are looking at these numbers, they have to be telling him, dude, this is not the time to run an election right now. And we still don't have the the whole COVID thing under control. so. That would be the only things I think that would hold Justin Trudeau back from an election right now. But as I say, I'm actually going to go all in for Lewis's prediction for an election. It will be a late spring election. And I actually think what's going to happen, and you can say you heard it here first on Canadian Common Sense, 
as we wrap up the show, there will be a spring election. And how Justin Trudeau is going to make that happen is he's going to make certain that there are enough liberal MPs who do not show up to vote when the, when the liberal government brings its budget to Parliament, whenever that's going to be. We have not seen a budget from this government in two years, and almost exactly two years. March 19th, 2019 was the last time this government delivered a budget to Canadians. That in itself is criminal. But I think whatever day the budget does come, and we keep being told there's one coming, I believe that Justin Trudeau will engineer the demise of his government by accidentally having a bunch of liberal MPs not show up to vote so that the budget can be defeated in the House of Commons, which is an automatic vote of non-confidence because any, any monetary bill is an automatic confidence vote in Canada. So having the budget fail would automatically trigger an election and Justin Trudeau could say it wasn't his fault, it was those nasty opposition people that made this happen. That's my prediction, Canada. We will see what happens with that. And of course, as events continue to unfold, stay tuned right in here to Canadian Common Sense, and we will certainly keep you abridged as to what's going on. But I will sign off on that for now. So in the meantime, we uh, hope you enjoy this show. Hope you enjoyed some of our rants over the past few days. And you can look forward to a couple more rants in between today's show and next week's full episode. Until then, thank you so much to all of you around the world for tuning in. Thank you, Canada, and have a great night. This is Canadian Common Sense with Lewis and Tony.